So as Jess said, this is uh, week two of our Big Questions series. Um, Last week, if you were here, you may remember we looked at some of the features of living in a postmodern world. We said there are three features in particular that, without us even being aware of it, affect and shape how we think about what's normal and what's right. And we do that without even realising that we're thinking about anything, because it's just stuff that to us is obvious. Just like a fish doesn't know what water is because it's never known anything else. A fish doesn't realise that it's swimming in anything. But you know the reality is that in today's world we're swimming in waters that no one else in the history of the world has ever swum in. Ways of thinking that would never have occurred to people and in many cases would have been the direct opposite. Now, broadly speaking, there are three ways of uh, looking at the way things are in the course of uh, history, what's obviously normal and obviously right throughout the ages. Working backwards, the age we're now living in, at least in the West, is generally called postmodernity. And that's been becoming the dominant way of thinking since sometime in the latter part of the 20th century. The age of modernity, before that, broadly coincided with what we call the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution and the Age of Science. And that's from sometime around the 18th century onwards. Now, of course, looking at where we're at today, worldviews don't change overnight. So older people in particular, or people who've been perhaps brought up in, in Christian homes, will still tend to think predominantly in modern terms. But in the entire history of the world before that, thousands and thousands of years, there was basically only one worldview that we now call the ancient worldview. They didn't call it that at the time, of course. And in the ancient world, they had some very different ways of looking at what's obviously normal and obviously right for society. We must keep in mind as well that not everywhere in the world experienced the Enlightenment. There are major parts of the world that still have a pre-modern worldview. And that's one of the reasons why in the West we don't understand some of the Muslim world. Because we each have totally different sets of values of things that are obviously right to us. If you'd like to understand a little bit more about that, I I can recommend a book by Mike Pierce, who was uh, one of the lecturers at London School of Theology when Lynn studied there, called Why the Rest?, hates the West. And Mike explains the reason that so many people around the world are so resentful of Western culture. And it's because our our underlying assumptions directly contradict their own cultural and religious values. So they feel that everything that they hold dear and sacred is under attack from us by an economic and cultural juggernaut, driven, as they see it, by ungodly individualism immorality and consumerism that doesn't even realise what it's doing to them. So, for example, in the West, we think that the freedom of women to dress the way that they want to is obvious. But to conservative Muslims, it's obvious that women should dress discreetly and modestly. In the West, we think that politics and religion should obviously be kept separate. But for conservative Muslims... Only a godless culture like the West could want to keep its religion out of its politics, and so on. 
So let me quickly remind you about three features of postmodernity that we looked at last week. And while we do that, what I'd like you to do is to think about how those features might impact on sharing our faith, of explaining the good news of Jesus and his kingdom in a postmodern world. I want you to see if you can see some of the implications for how we've traditionally gone about explaining the gospel. So number one is a rejection of meta-narratives. Now, meta-narrative is a big word, sorry about that, but all it means is an overarching set of ideas or values that together define what's obvious and normal in relation to society, human relationships, morality and behaviour. A meta-narrative is an explanatory framework that wants to tell you the answer to the question that was so famously posed by Monty Python and more recently by the Alpha Course, what's the meaning of life? Now the point of a meta-narrative for the person who's promoting it is that it is obviously objective, timeless truth about the way things are and the way things should be and why they are. And so, of course, everyone should live in accordance with it. And for Christians and Christianity, the Bible has served as just such a meta-narrative over the years. Feature number two is a scepticism towards institutions, which is an, an instinctive reaction against the trustworthiness and the authority of institutions and those, therefore, who represent them. So that would include governments and the police, big business, oil companies, and so on. And of course, that scepticism towards institutions includes any institution whose mission is based on a meta-narrative and telling people that this is obviously something that they should accept and live by, that is timelessly true for everybody, as the church has traditionally done based on the Bible. And then feature number three is an excessive individualism. The assumption that I personally will obviously make all my own decisions about what I believe and what I do, with only limited, if any, account taken of the views of my group or my community. Postmodernity believes in the autonomous person, that I obviously make my own judgments on what I believe and how I live, where I go and what I do. A central expectation of something that is obviously right in today's world is every individual's right to personal self-determination, self-expression and personal fulfilment. But in days gone by, the idea of not prioritising your duties and responsibilities, not consulting the group and not doing what the group thinks is right would have been called selfishness and scandalous. In the ancient world, the views of the group would have been paramount, which is the assumption underlying decision-making and hearing from God in the Bible. So the parable of the prodigal son is an example. The son leaving home is no big deal in today's world. The early church in Acts 15 is another example of group decision-making. They decided on the basis of what seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. Whereas today, most Christians make their decisions only on the basis of what seems good to me and the Holy Spirit. 
And these three features of postmodernity all compound themselves. So in, in years gone by, the meta-narrative of Western society included ideas like these. Couples should obviously be married, not just live together. Same-sex relationships were obviously wrong. Britain is a Christian country, so the Bible should obviously be taught in schools and should obviously be our principal point of reference for lawmaking and right living. We should obviously have unquestioned allegiance to our country, unquestioning respect for our leaders, our government, civil servants, politicians, the monarchy and the police. We should be deferential to our bosses and we should be deferential to people in a higher social class than us. The man should obviously be head of the house. The husband should obviously work and the wife should obviously be a homemaker and so on. All of these things were taken as obvious. But in postmodernity, one of its highest values is that no one should be imposing their view on everybody else, appealing to some objective standard, such as our traditional values or what the Bible says. That is rejected as an attempt to oppress people and stifle their personal freedom, which is seen as paramount. Truth, it says, is different for everybody. What's true for you, what feels right for you, isn't necessarily true for me. Postmodernity calls out the fact, with some justification it has to be said, that the supposed timeless truth of a meta-narrative has often been used as a weapon through the centuries to exploit people and to oppress people, like women and the working class and indigenous people groups in other countries, often in the name of a religious meta-narrative. Postmodernity also points out with some justification again that what one era thought of as timeless truth was often disproven by another era. So 385 years ago this week, February the 13th, which is actually the very day I was writing this bit of the talk, Galileo arrived in Rome to face charges of heresy for suggesting that the earth revolved around the sun, not the other way around. And to avoid the death penalty, he pleaded guilty and he was put under indefinite house arrest until he died nine years later. And we said last week, didn't we, that there's nothing intrinsically good or better about the worldview of any age compared to any other age. All of them have their strengths and their weaknesses. All of them offer things that are helpful for the gospel and things that are unhelpful for the gospel. So we shouldn't just blame postmodernity. Everything wouldn't be all right if we could only go back to the 1950s before all this postmodern stuff started. And it wouldn't even be all right if we could just go back to the world of the Bible either. Because there are some very good reasons why some of these features of postmodernity and modernity before it came about in the first place. Some things that the ancient world took for granted and that modernity also mostly took for granted as well. Things like slavery, racism, colonialism and exploitation, abuses of power, the divine right of kings, unquestioning acceptance of authority, patriarchy, the suppression and oppression of women, and so on. 
So perhaps it's no wonder that postmodernity reacted to the very idea of the meta narrative in the first place. We said last week that Romans 12.2 is true in every era and every culture, whichever it is that we're talking about. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mould, but let God remould your minds from within. And you know, it's easy to read that and assume that it's just talking about a postmodern world. But of course, those words were originally talking about the ancient worldview. So I wonder whether you've spotted any of the implications for sharing our faith, for sharing the good news of Jesus in a postmodern world. The rejection of meta-narratives, for example, impacts on us offering people a Christian meta-narrative of how things are and how things should be. The Bible says no longer carries the authority that it used to. Most people don't go to church and the Bible isn't taught in schools or at least it's only taught in a comparative religions kind of way. So most people don't know the Bible characters or the Bible stories. So that has to completely affect how we think about preaching and what we're expecting when we pray for revival. You see, the assumption of modernity was that people have a latent or dormant understanding deep down inside of them, based on the Bible, that they're all sinners who are guilty before God. So what we need God to do is just to revive it and bring it back to life. So our preaching the gospel just has to convince people that they're sinners and that inner sense of guilt will be revived. It will all come flooding back. They'll repent, there'll be revival, and the nation will come back to the Lord. But the problem is, in postmodernity, there isn't actually anything there to revive. There's nothing to come back to. They don't know the stories and the characters, and they don't have a latent sense of God and sin and guilt. When preachers talk casually about Paul wrote this and Paul said that, they're thinking, who is this Paul? Do I know him? When preachers use stock religious language and make passing reference to Bible stories on the assumption that everyone knows them, all they're doing is reinforcing the idea that church is a place for insiders only. Another thing that's changed is that in modernity, Western society was a guilt-based culture in which you know that you're doing wrong by what your conscience tells you. So the aim of the preacher was to stir up the guilt before God, that sense of guilt before God, and a fear of punishment as the consequence. And many of the great evangelists of the 20th century and earlier, like Billy Graham, Charles Finney, John Wesley, they did that very successfully. But the reason it doesn't work today is because we're no longer a guilt culture, but a shame culture. In a guilt culture, right and wrong is based on what my conscience thinks. In a shame culture, right and wrong is based on what my social network thinks. So shame only happens if we're caught and what we've done becomes public. Our fear is not punishment before God, but embarrassment before others and the consequence of social exclusion. 
So in a shame culture, what we do in private doesn't really matter. In postmodernity, there is no latent sense of guilt and awareness of my sin deep inside to be stirred up, however powerful the preaching. The frame of reference for people doesn't exist. So the preacher might as well be talking in Shakespearean English. And that's assuming he doesn't already use the King James Version. Now, of course, this isn't the case everywhere. In much of the US, for example, you can still look to the old ways and the old assumptions, and they can still be successful. The same is true closer to home in Northern Ireland, where 90% of the population were brought up as Christians, but only 20% are regular churchgoers. So there's still plenty to revive. But when we make the same assumptions here and try to copy what works in the US or what works in Northern Ireland, expecting it to work exactly the same for us, we shouldn't be at all surprised that we don't get the same results. Someone called Alan Mann, who was at London School of Theology with Lynn, wrote a book called Atonement for a Sinless Society, with the sinless in inverted commas. He didn't mean that society is without sin. He meant that society doesn't have a concept of sin in the traditional sense. He said this, Individuals no longer live with a sense of sin and guilt in the way that evangelists would wish them to in order to successfully communicate the atoning work of Christ. Uh, Steve Holmes is a conservative evangelical theologian, but he agrees that if the only gospel we've got solves a problem that nobody feels, then it's no wonder our churches are shrinking. There's a lot of work in first explaining to people that they really ought to be feeling guilty before then solving the problem for them. So if we're taking seriously what these guys are saying, then we need to change not just our language, not just one set of words for another set of words, but our conceptual framework as well. We're going to have to work a bit harder. It's so much easier, you know, to preach sermons where you can throw in all kinds of casual references to Bible stories and Bible characters and you can say, as you know, all the time to your audience. But talking about changing the message is where we come up against a classic dilemma for evangelicals like ourselves. What's the difference between bowing to the culture, absorbing the culture, and changing the message to suit the culture, and explaining the message in ways that make sense to the culture? Not just language, but also concepts, so that postmodern people will be able to get it, and for that message still to be completely faithful to the Bible. That's the challenge. Now, in order to do that, I think the starting point has to be a couple of things. Number one is an awareness, a recognition of the times in which we're living, the water in which we're swimming, to accept that there is a challenge to be faced and what that challenge involves. And the other thing is good theology. Now, I know the word theology makes some Christians come out in a rash, but we need to have good theology to be able to see the difference between capitulating to the culture and communicating in the culture. You see, the gospel is timelessly true for all people, in all places, in all cultures, and for all time. 
So we have no mandate to change the gospel to suit the postmodern mindset, or for that matter, any mindset. But it will never be perceived to be good news if we're answering questions with it that people aren't asking, if we're offering solutions through it to problems that people don't recognise, and explaining it in language and concepts that make no sense to them. So I want to use the last few minutes to talk about how to share our faith within a postmodern world. Because after everything I've been saying so far, you may be thinking, golly, this is going to be impossible. But you know, really, it isn't. It's not something to be scared of, just something to be aware of. And actually, it's very exciting. Because you'll see in a moment that many of the characteristics of postmodernity are actually tremendously amenable to sharing the gospel. So we have a very exciting opportunity as long as we're aware of the environment that we're working in. So let me just start with a few quick ground rules, a few essential starting points. The first one is authenticity. If you aren't a person who's been transformed visibly by Jesus, then they will never be a person transformed by Jesus. Because before we ever talk about a message, we already are a message, for better or for worse. Now that doesn't mean that we have to be perfect, or even less that we should pretend to be perfect, or something that we're not, because people will spot that a mile off. But postmoderns are not particularly interested in being told our message is authentic, but they're very interested in seeing whether we're authentic. What kind of person is this truth that I've found making me into? And we have no right to be heard on anything unless we have authenticity to start with. The second ground rule is that we must love Jesus and we must love people. If we're not sharing the gospel because we love the person we're sharing it with, then, frankly, we shouldn't bother. We must never love the truth more than we love the person. We must never deliver the truth for truth's sake, only for love's sake, which is why we shouldn't be majoring on sin as our starting point, and especially someone else's sin. 1 Timothy 1.5 says, The goal of what we do is love from a pure heart. So can I suggest that we give up on that Christian catchphrase, love the sinner, hate the sin? Because no one will ever get that in a postmodern world. And actually, what are we trying to prove when we do say that? That we're not soft on sin? Just love people. That's not condoning sin or ignoring sin, but let the Holy Spirit deal with that in his own time. That is his job to reveal to them. And then the third one is starting where people are at. We have to be willing to start where people are at, rather than where they used to be at or where you think they ought to be at. So don't try to sell a meta-narrative to them. Don't start with the Bible says and expect that to be automatically taken as authoritative. Don't try to defeat their worldview and win. Don't try to land killer blows with winning arguments. You see, we can win a debate, but we can't win a conversation. 
So let's have conversations instead of debates. Let's focus on listening rather than just telling. Let's focus on what we're for rather than what we're against. Let's ask people lots of questions and be genuinely interested in their opinions, not just listening in order to better argue with them. And respect their opinions. People will be far more likely to be interested in yours if you're listening and respecting theirs. And then we have to rethink our conceptual framework for the message, the process, and the outcome. And all I mean by rethinking our conceptual framework is we need a different direction of travel. We need different emphases and different expectations about how people are going to get there from here compared to years ago. So let's start with the message. In postmodernity, it's not all about persuasive arguments and having all the answers. So forget about the theology and just focus on your story. You never thought you'd hear me say, forget about the theology. (laughs) But you know it's true because postmoderns are suspicious of claims to universal truth, of what's supposedly truth for everybody. But they're very interested in personal stories, what you've found to be true in your life and your experience. So focus on a personal narrative, not a meta-narrative. Introduce your Christian friends so they can share their stories about what they've found to be true in their life and experience. Postmoderns will be drawn to faith through relationships, personal stories and lived experience. You may know that the Apostle Paul talked about my gospel. And I think what he meant by that is that he just shared what the good news looked like in his life. So let's share what the good news looks like in our lives. And let's say, this is how I look at it. Or, this is what makes sense to me. Rather than, the Bible says this or that. No doubt the Bible does say this or that. But don't approach it from that angle. The second one is think invitation rather than persuasion, and particularly your role in that. Because sharing our faith is a team game, not a solo performance. You don't need to be able to persuade people and have all the answers. All you need to do is invite people. Let them come along. Let them meet people, watch people, talk to people, have lunch with people, experience worship, see what we do, and so on. See how we do it. So let them see what faith looks like, not just hear what it sounds like. And that then leads on to the process of how people come to faith in a postmodern world. And in modernity, it was all about getting a decision, wasn't it? It was all about reviving what was there deep inside. But in postmodernity, we need to allow for there to be a journey. So our expectation should be slightly different. Our expectation should be to help to move people along a scale from a zero of no understanding whatsoever about God and the Bible to a 10 where someone is totally sold out to Jesus. 
and allowing them to journey along that scale in their own time rather than expecting them to leap from a zero to a ten the first time they come to church and get a decision for Jesus. Because, you know, in the old days, they probably came to church, and perhaps it was came back to church, as a seven or an eight. So it was a reasonable expectation that God might do that. Now, obviously, the Holy Spirit can do whatever he likes, uh, when he likes, So if he does do that first time, then that's wonderful. But it's really a case of where we set our expectations so that we make sure that we're journeying with people. And it's not all about, therefore, just getting a decision. The next thing is we must allow people to belong before they believe. As you may may know, traditionally in churches, the process was if you behave like us and you believe like us, then you can belong with us. But what we need to do is to reverse that and let people belong before they believe. Being inclusive is a key value of postmodernity, so let's go with the flow on that one. Let's include people in on what we do so they can kick the tyres, if you like, so they can try before they buy. Let them experience whether these people are real and if what they've discovered is real when you scratch below the surface. So treat people as in and let them decide if they want out. Encourage them to try worship, to try praying, to try reading the Bible, especially the Gospels. Encourage them to pray and invite God to move in their lives because we we love a God who delights in moving in people's lives. So let's give him the opportunity. Let's encourage them to test him out on that and see what he does. And that then leads on to experiencing Jesus before accepting Jesus. And what I mean by that is that we need to have a very high expectation of the role of the Holy Spirit in bringing people to faith, corresponding to a relatively low expectation for the persuasive power of our words alone. One of the great things about postmodernity is that postmoderns love experience. And we love a God who loves us to experience him, don't we? Jesus came into this world so we could experience God. And he sent his Holy Spirit to be with us when he returned to heaven so that we could experience God. So rather than just targeting intellectual decisions to accept Jesus, we can invite people to experience Jesus and allow the Holy Spirit to do the persuasive work. Now obviously we have a role to play, don't we? But largely that will become explaining rather than persuading. Now, people may not use our kind of language to express what they uh, experience, particularly not to begin with, but we can be expectant and confident that they may say things like this. Really interesting. Not what I expected. Intriguing. Loved the welcome. Liked the music. The talk made me think. Might like to come again sometime. There's an amazing atmosphere there. There's something about that place. All of these things are what people sense when they experience the presence and the moving of God for the first time. 
Biblically, of course, you may know the Holy Spirit's role is to bring the presence of God and the power of God and conviction of sin and revealing truth. So you don't have to convert anyone. Isn't that good? Just bring them, invite them into the presence of God on a Sunday morning and other stuff we do and see what happens. If God is real, we can trust him to take care of the rest. He will do the persuading. He will build his church. And all we'll have to do is to be obedient, to invite, and to be prepared to answer questions. And then finally, our expectation. What's our expectation for the outcome? And I think it's this. Transformation, not just conversion. It's not all about just getting people to change their beliefs. It's about having them experience the power of God changing their lives. Now, of course, Jesus is good news in every culture and every era. But here's the thing. People perceive what good news looks like in each era and each culture rather differently. There's no point in us offering Jesus as the answer to problems that people don't recognize. So what happens is that different aspects of the good news make more sense or less sense in some cultures and some eras than others. This is not about designing a gospel to order or changing it to suit the postmodern mindset. It's about starting with those characteristics of the gospel that are already there those characteristics of what happens when Jesus comes into your life that are already there, the ones that are the antithesis of the bad news that people feel and experience in postmodern life. If we think of the structure of a spider's web instead of the traditional picture of the building, so multiple anchor points rather than just one foundational idea, And if we think of these as the anchor points of the bad news of postmodern life, such as brokenness, loneliness, broken relationships, hopelessness, lostness, godlessness, fear, shame, regret, rejection, addiction, emptiness, and so on. What happens when we welcome Jesus into our life? He transforms our experience of that life. So instead of brokenness, he brings completeness. Instead of loneliness, he brings friendship with God. Instead of broken relationships, he brings healed relationships. Instead of hopelessness, he brings expectation. Instead of lostness, he brings purpose. Instead of godlessness, he brings God with us-ness. Instead of fear, he brings love, joy, peace. Instead of shame, he brings self-worth and value. Instead of regret, he brings forgiveness. Instead of rejection, He brings acceptance instead of addiction. He brings release. And instead of emptiness, he brings his fullness. Now, if you know your Bible, or even if you don't, if you think about many of the songs that we sing, actually, all these aspects of the good news are very biblical. And they speak to stuff that people are aware of as the bad news of postmodern life. But none of these are focused on guilt and punishment. All of these see sin as more than a list of things I've done wrong. Although obviously sin 
includes that. But it also includes a lot of things that a sinful world and sinful people have done to me. Because we all experience sin in both of those ways. So the good news is just as much about healing and restoration of the damage of sin as it is about being forgiven for committing sin. Because all of us are both perpetrators of sin and victims of sin. At times we're one, at times the other. But through his death and resurrection, Jesus won the victory over sin in every way, in both these aspects, to heal us, to free us, and to restore us. Will we need to understand what Jesus has done for us in more ways than these? More ways that the Bible speaks about it? Yes, we will, over time. We need to understand what Jesus has done for us in every way that the Bible explains it. But as with everything else, we need to start where people are at and introduce them to a Jesus who will start where they're at. And we need to do that if we want to be good news to folks in a postmodern world.